Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Hollywood Podcast, covering the latest in film, TV, streaming, and social media. I'm your host, Max Geshwind. Stay tuned for today's episode. I'm so excited to be joined by director and writer Susanna Fogel, whose past directing credits include the film The Spy Who Dumped Me, as well as episodes from hit TV series like A Small Light and The Flight Attendant, for which she was nominated for an Emmy and won a DGA award. She also co-wrote Booksmart, which she received a WGA and BAFTA nomination for Best Screenplay, and her newest film, Cat Person, which releases next Friday, October 6th in theaters, is based on the popular New Yorker short story and stars Amelia Jones and Nicholas Braun and tells a modern and all-too-familiar tale of um, a dating story between Margot and Robert that quickly turns into a psychological thriller and questions the line between reality and fantasy. Susanna, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. That was quite an intro. I want to I want to record that so that I don't ever have to um, sell myself to people. <laughs> oh no, all good. I did the recording myself. Yeah, you um, did. Great. Okay, great. I'll make it. I'll, I'll put it on iTunes. Perfect. Yeah, for sure. So I want to start from the get-go with your involvement in this process. I believe it was Jeremy Steckler, the producer, who introduced you to um, Michelle, who wrote the screenplay, and Kristen, who wrote the um, original short story in the New Yorker. Can you talk about those first conversations you had with them? Um, that made you feel confident to collaborate with them and have this be your next directorial project? Uh, Yeah, I had worked with Jeremy on a previous project and we really got along and shared a sensibility. Um, And he approached me with this, um, you know, after Michelle Ashford had adapted the script uh, or adapted Kristen's story. And I was, um, I loved the script. I thought it was such a brilliant um, way to reimagine well not reimagine the story but take the story and in a way add a chapter that became in conversation with the story which to me was sort of the only way to make it feel like a big movie that could have the scope and reach that that the story did um the story was so internal and so perfectly observed but often those make very small internal films and in this case small internal films that would primarily be seen by women, I think. So the idea that Michelle had to sort of expand it and make it bigger and and hear a little bit more from Robert's side and also really um, externalize Margot's demons uh, into a more of a thriller plot, I think it gave it the potential to reach a wider audience, which is really, I think, necessary for this, this kind of conversation starting film, at least I hope it is. Mm-hmm. And I believe I read somewhere that when this story was actually published back in 2017, you read it as it, you know, was going viral way before you even came on to direct. And you were even, I think, internally crafting a film of this in your head. So can you talk about um, th- those initial thoughts that you had back in 2017 and if any elements at all to that internal crafting of this into a film? was translated into what we see now? Yeah, I mean, actually, I don't know where you exactly you read that, but but I, I was imagining the film that someone in Hollywood would make out of the story and thinking that movie is going to be small and I'll watch it, but I wish there was a way to make a bigger movie. <laughs> but I didn't see myself as the person to make it. I, I couldn't really see the way forward until I read Michelle's script. Um, but, but initially when I read the story, I loved it. I thought 
you know, I was so excited to see a literary magazine publishing a story about a young woman that centered a young woman's experience and gave legitimacy to the microscopic detail that Kristen used. It's just not something that you often see in a magazine like The New Yorker. You don't see stories that are just a real surgical um, look at dating, (laughs) dating in your 20s. Um, It's not what they're known for. So when I read it, I was like, okay, this is great. We're talking about these things and we're dignifying these experiences. Uh, And I I loved it. And I I also was fascinated by the level of conversation that started and the level of debate and heated debate that that ensued just the fact that people were so divided and worked up about the story that to me just felt like an extremely relatable nothing to argue about well-observed piece of fiction um was surprising so I guess like what I'm saying is that the debate in the culture kind of became the narrative it seemed like a runaway train where suddenly everyone is arguing about this very relatable thing kind of reminded me of when those memes go around and they're like, do you see a blue dress or a gold dress? Right. Um, And it was like, this was just people projecting their experiences, emotions, and thoughts about sex and dating onto this story and having some pretty wild opinions about it. So I was like, okay, what's that about? That seems like something that we need to keep talking about in the culture. And particularly because it's a movie about a, a story and a movie about a lot of gray areas and confusion and it kind of complicates the idea of consent, which I think can be handled in a really oversimplified way in the culture and in movies where it is about a verbal yes or a no. And that's, that's it. That's the extent of the complexity of it. And in truth, it's so much more complicated. And I, I, I liked being part of a project that shows a woman verbally consenting to something that she doesn't want or doesn't want consistently or doesn't know what she wants. And that just felt so much more real and authentic. Right. And it should be noted too, that the short story came out amidst the Time's Up movement. And I think that especially, you know, made the story catch the fire that it did and um, receive the groundswell of popularity and reads that it did at the time. Um, you mentioned before um, duality um, This before we started this interview, and you start off the film with a quote from Margaret Atwood that definitely presents this duality and differences in each gender's fear in the world. And I'm paraphrasing, but um, Atwood says something along the lines of how men are afraid that women will make fun of them and women are afraid that men will kill them. Um, and that really encapsulates both characters' motivations for doing the things that they do as the film progresses. Can you share why it was important putting that into the viewer's mind, that quote from Atwood as the story began? Yeah, actually that was in Michelle's script. So um, I can't take credit for adding that, but basically it really informed the approach to making the film. Um, Just the idea that, and it really resonated with me that there is there is like a visceral fight or flight that all women have just knowing that men are bigger than them. And that is just something that we live with. And it, it it's um, no matter how strong, smart, confident, educated we may be, there's, there's just something that happens when you're walking alone at night and you see a guy following you in the shadows and you just 
instantly think that person could kill me. Like that just does happen. There's not, I, I don't know a single woman who hasn't felt that at one point. So we live with that genre of feelings all the time. Um, so that I thought, you know, that, that does inform a lot of what Margot's going through as she's trying to open up to this guy and she's trying to, you know, make a connection and fall in love. And that is what she wants because movies and books and the culture tell her to pursue love with a man. And yet the reality is that she doesn't know this person that she's suddenly alone with. And he's six foot seven in the case of Nick Braun, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. that person could be anyone and he could have really bad intentions and she wouldn't stand a chance. So I don't know, that really resonated with us. And we talked about that from moment to moment on the set a lot. Like, all the little tiny exchanges between the two where he's aware that she's aware that he could be a bad guy. And that's sort of offensive and hurts his feelings because he's not really doesn't see himself that way. But in the moment where he's like, Oh, she's afraid of me. His first response is to get hurt and offended by that, which is understandable, but also it just causes more and more uncomfortable subtext. And then on the la- on the laughing at women laughing at men side of it, it's, it's such a relatable feeling to be a woman engaging with a man who is both pursuing and then if rejected instantly. So mean, that's just a thing. I mean, I guess in this push to its extreme, that's what incel culture is, but in the more relatable, in the more relatable day-to-day of it, it's just, I think it's really hard to put yourself out there and men are sensitive you know women are too but men are too and there isn't really a way to talk about that in the culture that's not shaming so often it just goes underground into this weird rage thing so just the idea that there's that robert is proceeding with baby steps toward margaret but at margo but at any moment he's ready to be on the defensive if she says no um because he's he's always afraid that you know he's not sure if it's fully safe to proceed he's right. not fully he has the green light. And so he's always ready to um, put up some armor if he gets, if he gets a red light, you know, and I think that's really real too for men and for women. Right. Um, I want to talk about finding Amelia Jones and Nick Braun, who are your two leads, your Margot and Robert in this film. Um, I think I read somewhere that you wanted to find two actors who had profiles, but weren't so much of a known quantity that we as the viewer knew every bit of their personal life that we might knew um, if it were, you know, someone more known like a, a Tom Cruise or, you know, someone that level. <laughs> right. Um, so can Tom, you talk Tom about Cruise, Robert? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so can you talk about finding Amelia and Nick as that happy medium between someone who's known just enough, but not too much and why you felt like that um, specific balance was important for um filling these roles in the film? Yeah, it's really hard when you're casting because um, anybody who's investing in a film uh, wants to know that people are going to watch that film. And you never know. You never know how things are going to land in the culture and whether you'll make your money back. But one way to hedge against the risk is to put actors that people recognize in the movie. So it's always a conversation with every movie. Um, But with this particular movie, it's such a it's a story that people have a lot of associations with and it's, it sort of lives or dies in the details of who plays those roles. So if Margot is too kind of too much of a famous actress influencer type, it just loses all of the specificity of how 
anonymous she feels and how vulnerable she feels. Like you're, it, it, it's hard. It's going to create a cognitive disconnect between what I'm saying you should be thinking and what you're thinking, recognizing her from before from tabloids. So I really wanted just people that were kind of exciting, exciting enough that people would be like, oh, that movie with two people I've heard of, as opposed to a obscure indie film um, with people I don't recognize, but not not tip over into, oh, I know too much about that person's, you know, I know that person dated Harry Styles or whatever. It just, it just right. pulls you out. <laughs> um, so I think it's, it's a challenge. I mean, Amelia was perfect. She was coming off of CODA, but CODA hadn't won the Academy Award yet. So she was, she felt like someone on the rise. And then Nick, um, Nick is somebody who's known and he's known for playing a nerd, but he also you know, is someone that women find attractive in the world, but also on TV, he plays a guy who isn't sure of himself. So he felt like he'd be perfect for that balance of what Robert is, which is sometimes he's attractive and sometimes he's not. It's sort of all in his, it's kind of all in in his presentation of himself and his confidence. And he sort of has that chameleon energy to him that Robert needs to have because from moment to moment, she's seeing him as a different different thing. He's either her... He's either like he can he's Prince Charming in some moments and in other moments he's terrifying and in other moments he's disgusting to her. Like he needs to sort of be able to do all the things. And I think Nick really has that ability. And they both actually have an ability to to be great character actors and disappear into their roles, which was important too. Right. And as you just, you know, shared, it's so fascinating to see where these two were you know, before coming on the project versus now in terms of, you know, pre-CODA and pre-Succession really taking off in the big way that it did. And um, mm-hmm. you really took advantage of that um, in a great way. It's like you foretold the, the way the next couple of years would look like in terms of their um, their status as public figures. Um, I wanted to switch gears because I read in, or I heard in an interview that Amelia did um, while she was doing press for um, cat person um, a few months ago, which is that a lot was discovered on set or improvised. Can you share what you might have discovered that you hadn't anticipated during pre-production that um, came about during filming? Yeah, it's so funny. When when I've worked with actors who have done a lot of television, they think that the sets that I run are very improv heavy. And then when I work with actors who have been on heavily improvised comedy sets, they think that I'm very like rigid about sticking to the script. So it's, it's funny. I am, uh, we, which is just to say that I think Amelia wasn't used to being given the freedom to, to do a couple of takes, um, from, for each setup where she got to sort of make, make it her own, put it in her own words, do her own thing, have it, have a totally wildly different reaction to something. Um, I always, I always do that. Even if it's, even if it's on a TV show, even if it's pretty locked down set, just because I think sometimes those little in-between moments that actors come up with are so precious and they end up in the movie, just those little spontaneous moments of authenticity that come from not, not knowing what the, what your scene partner is going to say next. Um, so yeah, I mean we 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 had an, a great we had a great script to 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 work with and then on the day sometimes you find things that feel like you want to tweak this or that or or you just want to try something totally different. Um sometimes you get to a set and there's a scene that's really visceral and really emotional and it's it's got 
a lot of dialogue and it feels like it's better to just play it with more silences and more emotions. And, you know, we, we had some, we had some moments, especially with the really heightens the really heightened conflicts um, where it didn't feel like it wanted to have as much writing. It just felt like it wanted to be the dynamic and the subtext between these two people all playing out visually, which is, it's always the process of turning a script into a film. It's like, there's certain things that you want to show um, and actors talking about it is actually detract, it actually detracts from the impact of the moment. So there, it was, it was just an ongoing process. I'm, I'm a writer too. So I, I, I want to always honor what the script is doing, but I also feel like there has to be some fluidity there. And, and Michelle's very, um, Michelle's very cool about that too. So it was, it was a process. There was some improvising and, and, and yet the backbone of the script is very much what the movie was. As, as the story unravels, it definitely takes on this suspenseful thriller tone that I don't think audiences expect, you know, <laughs> from the get-go when the film first starts. In fact, and I won't give too much away, but the climax definitely does give vibes of, you know, like final girl from like the 70s, 80s slasher films, whether it's like Halloween or Friday the 13th or one of those as, you know, the final girl protagonist is confronting her antagonist um yeah. so can you um talk about how you found this more genre um horror like tone that the film switches gears into as the story begins to unravel yeah i mean it's this is a, we talked a lot about how this is a person who's raised on a lot of pop culture not only does she work in a movie theater where she's familiar with all of those references because they show them at the movie theater where she works mm -hmm. but She's very plugged in. She's very, you know, she's a person who grew up watching everything, reading everything, listening to everything. And so I think as she's making her way and becoming an adult, she's always in the process of figuring out what movie she's in. If we're all the star of our own movie, what is, what is this encounter? Is it a great love story? Is it is it a movie about a woman that gets killed? Is it, a, a, you know... What what is it? Um, and she's trying to define what that what that is. Um, and so part of it is is wanting to just, um, in a way, her her mind allows her to imagine herself in the worst case scenario. And we wanted to make that feel really visceral for everybody. So for people to feel the jump scare that she feels when she's walking alone at night um, was a big part of it. And wanting to just immerse you in her psychology and not really know what's real and what's projection and what's her being vigilant and keeping herself safe and what's manifesting a boogeyman that's going to ultimately, you know, um, cause more problems for her to be inventing. Um, so I think part of it is, is, yeah, we wanted to lean into the idea that she's, that her fears just become really overpowering and intense. And in the end, they lead her to without giving anything away, like they lead her to make some decisions to protect herself because she is like, I don't want to end up like that. So I'm going to preempt it with this behavior that ultimately in a way manifests the worst case scenario of what she was imagining. So often we create, we like create the monster ourselves. And in a way that's, that's what happened. Not that it's not that it's entirely her responsibility. There was also some, someone there who had his own, who is like clay waiting to be molded into that monster. But in a way she's, she's part of that. She was part of that, um, 
that process. She like played an active role in in getting them to the to the conclusion of the film. Right. Um, I had two last questions for you. Um, the the material is so sensitive and so intense and so relatable. Um, were did Nick or Amelia bring any of their personal experiences to the table to better inform their performances? And was that helpful for you as the director? Yeah, I mean, like from the moment I met Nick and Amelia on on Zoom, like interviewing them for this film, it's impossible to talk about this film without getting super personal. It's not normal in like a first Zoom with a stranger. <laughs> to just start divulging details about your personal life. But on this movie, every single person I met <laughs> started doing that because the story just invites that. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, we, our, our rehearsal process was really talking through, talking through every moment in the script because so much of it is about the miscommunications. They're saying one thing, but there's layers of subtext. Like they're, Robert is Robert is saying one thing, but he's also trying to protect himself. And he's also got baggage and he's also kind of angry. And he's also, you know, there's something underneath every word that they exchange. And so when we were rehearsing, we were talking about all that subtext. And in doing so, we we all related our own experiences and experiences with other people, how other people treated us, how we felt in situations where we were rejected or um, doing the rejecting. So yeah, I mean, this is a movie that benefits from incredibly personal conversations, which requires a level of trust because, again, you, you don't know these people and you get to know them um, very quickly. But it's it's also a professional situation. So to get to a point where you're that comfortable is it's a bit of a process. Is there a particular message or I guess in the case of this film, a warning that you hope um, particularly young audiences um, take away from after watching the film? And is there one separately for men versus women? Or is there a singular unifying message or warning that you have for everyone? I would I would say that my hope is that men and women can watch the movie and see aspects of their experience in both of the characters. Um, I, don't, I don't think every man is going to relate with Robert. And I don't think every woman is going to relate with Mark to relate to Margot. Um, I think my hope is that people see a lens on moments in in male female dynamics that are usually not the focus of films like a film usually focuses on either a love story or or it's about an assault and it's clear who's right and who's wrong and um the idea of consent is like this verbal one word answer that then dictates the morality of what happens next and this is a movie that isn't about those things. It's about all of the other things that go into dating and sex, um, at least for this couple. So I'm, I'm hoping that people can watch it and say, oh, I can, I can pick out so many places where this went wrong. And I recognize my, you know, something in my life, whether it's, oh, I've been with a guy like that. And I didn't feel like I could say X or Y and now I don't feel so much shame about that because I see Marty, you know, it, it should either make people feel seen, understood, inspired to do differently, inspired to communicate more authentically with each other. It's hard to reduce it to one thing. I think, I think if people can come out of the movie thinking men and women need to communicate better, um, it's not going to solve all the problems. And it doesn't mean that 
want that the characters are equally to blame for what happened, but it, it is a thing we need to do, do a better job at, especially now where we have the option with our phones and everything of doing so much projecting, so much more projecting than we actually have face-to-face encounters with each other. And that is a problem. It really creates this disconnect, like that anger people feel that a real life person isn't living up to this person that they constructed from their text messages is, is a, you know, that shouldn't be happening as much as it does. So. Absolutely. Yeah. It does speak to the dangers of social media, you know, in combination with um, that harming the in-person face-to-face realities of dating um, that, you know, unfortunately is falling victim to, to, you know, social media and the perceptions and how it misaligns with the reality. Um, And you encapsulate that so brilliantly in the film. Um, Well, Susanna, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Cat Person releases next Friday, October 6th in theaters. Um, Congratulations again, Susanna. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please take a moment to subscribe to The Hollywood Podcast for free on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Max Geshwind. Thanks for listening.